This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Well, welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Today, Steve, you can introduce us. It's just us two. It's one of the, the old classic Coke is back. We're not doing so many interviews. It's just us. Yes. We're doing a good old-fashioned Phil and Steve episode. Yeah. Like the good old days. As we do every other episode, basically. Because <laughs> we're actually recording this after the interview that'll air next because we want to keep alternating. I realize we don't actually have to do that. I'm just self-imposing that for like no reason. Yes, you are. Well, so today we're talking about social capital. Yes, social capital. What is that, Steve? Well, there's a contention in the literature regarding the exact definition. And so just to be as general as possible before we get into it, I'll just go with the Wikipedia route as we tend to do sometimes. And so it's defined as the networks of relationships among people who live and work in a particular society, enabling that society to function effectively. In layman's terms, it's pretty much your network. Yeah, there's the people you know, the people you're friends with, and I'm assuming this includes like friends of friends, or is it just limited to just like your friends? They would extend I guess to those weak ties as well, and so it's pretty much your network but not just your network, it's your network in a way that you can harness it as a resource for potential personal gain. Right, so first let's talk about capital though, where this term actually originates. So social capital is a variation on capital. The definition I pulled for that, and again, I think this probably is Wikipedia, but it's just so concise. In economics, capital goods or capital consists of those durable produced goods that are in turn used as productive inputs for further production of goods and services. So basically it's something you have that you can use to get more basically. And so in monetary terms, it's like money that you use to get more money. And so simple terms, it's just investing, really. Money begets more money. I mean, yes and no. It's like being liquid as well, like liquid capital versus like invested capital. But yeah, yeah, you're, I mean, I guess, yeah, I'm nitpicking. Yes. Like we usually use the word capital when we're referring to economic issues. Like what's the state of your capital? I guess they could ask in business. Is it liquid? Are you over leveraged? Uh, is your capital, in. you know, locked in? And so it's like really a banking investing type of term. But in sociology, my own background, Ooh, <laughs> if you did it, shocking know, you'd refer to that. <laughs> shocking that we should ever talk about sociology again. But in sociology, the social capital is a word that is researched and debated quite often. And we can approach it not just in terms of economic resources, but our social resources. So our resources extend beyond the amount of money we have. What does that mean? I mean, I can think of just a quick like thought experiment, I guess the word I'm looking for. So if you want to talk about like what social capital is, let's imagine that we got two people and both of them have just suddenly lost everything in a fire, let's say all their house and everything. And the bank is, I don't know, for whatever reason, some glitch has made it so they have no money and no physical goods. What are the chances that the person who was broke to start with is going to be able to like claw their way up? And what is the likelihood that the person that was formerly rich with all the social ties that encapsulates, what are the chances that they're going to succeed? And it's pretty clear that if you reach out to your network, hey, I lost everything in this 
this terrible thing. I need some help. Obviously, the second one's going to have an easier time coming back up, right? Yeah. And so you can leverage your network to kind of regain from this disaster and, and extend it beyond just kind of regaining from a disaster, but kind of your life course and, and getting a career and even support and retirement and old age and long term. And, and so there's so many areas that this covers. And there's two general schools of thought in the sociological literature about this. There's kind of a more, what you're referring to, social inequality perspective, where social capital is kind of used as a lens to critique social inequality and marginalization. And on the other hand, there's a section of literature that looks at it as a potential good thing, really as a fundamental basis of democracy, perhaps you could even say. So there's kind of two sides to this. There's the kind of more left critical perspective on this, and then there's the more kind of moderate, conservative type of approach to kind of this being a basis of community and democracy. I see both, though, because like even with the criticism, like you could say like that lower class person is going to have a much harder time finding their way up. I think you can take lessons from this of like if you're able to present. I mean, the thing is, alongside this comes like the concepts of cultural capital and institutional capital. But if you are somehow able to like pass yourself off as having enough of those things to relate with people of a higher stature, you could possibly get a leg up by like faking until you make it, basically, I guess. I think one other thing I was going to point out before we moved off of it is that, like you said, you mentioned career. I think a career, by some definitions, is just purely social capital. I mean, there's a career body of work you could talk about, but some definitions that we've just touched on in the past is about how a career is actually having a developed network of professionals that are willing to work with you. And that's something you have to take over time through the body of work, working with people and showing like your skill and that you can get stuff done. They are willing to help you find further work or to advance or get new skills or whatever. And that's how like at the end of your career, if you want to get something done and you've been working in a specific industry or a handful of industries, you could probably leverage that network to get things done just on your own initiative easier than if you were at the very beginning trying to like I don't know, start like a social network or something. Right. And it's kind of that money begets money, the rich get richer. It's like the more you have, the, the easier it gets. And I think what you're referring to is still within the realm of that kind of social inequality approach to the concept. And even though, yes, as an individual, you can kind of pull yourself up and build your network and leverage it and do more and do more and like a snowballing effect, it's still unequal in the beginning where Pierre Bourdieu is really the main guy who talks about this. And he really points out that this kind of old boys network or the old boys club or whatever is kind of this how the wealthy keep their powers is their connections. And so beyond just the value of going to Harvard, for example, to get an education, there's way more that you get from going to an Ivy League school than actual knowledge. And I think we all kind of know this to some level. That's not just about the knowledge, but you go to these schools to get the network, the connections to be part of this kind of club. The question is, is do you still get a benefit from having a degree from, say, Harvard if you did it completely remotely? You yes. get some benefit, yes, but you have institutional capital, I guess, at that point? I would argue symbolic capital is a big one. So let's define that. So social capital is pretty much your networks and how you can leverage them. Symbolic capital is like your prestige, so the letters after your name, for example, like PhD gives you symbolic capital. Having Harvard on your resume gives you symbolic capital, meaning it's something that you can present to the world and you gain kind of authority, trust, access really is, is a big part of that as well. Access to what? different jobs like they're like oh you went to harvard like we love to hire harvard people i don't know <laughs> i guess that is true in china actually this is a kind of funny story i had a friend who's working at another school and far more 
prestigious school. I mean, mine was already somehow really prestigious, but his was even more. And the way they touted their English program was that they had, I think, an Oxford PhD working there. But the guy was a complete train wreck. Like he would be airing his dirty laundry all the time in the public forums and like something to all the English staff being like, I think they're replacing me and like all stuff like this. The guy was fall in love with the drop of a hat as soon as the woman said hello to him, basically. And this guy was kept on purely because of his degree. He was almost unable to function and actually kind of undermined the entire department. And because he was, I guess he had a degree, he was actually the head of the department and couldn't be let go until they replaced him, I guess. This is like a perfect example of how symbolic capital works. <laughs> a complete train wreck. And it's not about what you know and not necessarily about who you know, like your social capital, which is also important, but it's what you have in terms of your symbolic capital, in terms of where you've been, the letters after your name, what's on your resume and your associations. And that's hilarious. Like, <laughs> I love that story. Glad you enjoyed it. I actually wanted to include him in like as a character in my writing because he's just such a character. I wish my friend would have written down more of what he did. You could write a whole story about this guy. Likely. We should do an episode on this guy. Do your research. But being kind of from academia and going through the ranks and, and doing kind of a grad program PhD, you really learn that the primary mode of currency in academia is symbolic capital, prestige. It's really the main currency because monetarily, I mean, you, you don't get really paid necessarily well, especially when you're, you're in training. These days, it seems like you get like nothing. And then I found out that the journal industry is just horrendous in terms of like, you're not getting paid, you're paying to have it there. And it just seems like they're just soaking up money and I can't see what they're doing with it besides pocketing it. And they're spending prestige. So those are not familiar. The journals you're referring to are academic journals, which are where academic studies get published. And you might think like, oh, these academics must get paid really well to write for these prestigious journals. <laughs> not at all. Actually, most of them, they're doing it for free or they're actually paying to publish it in these journals. And so you might ask, then why do they do it? Well, they do it because it gains them prestige points. If you can publish in a particularly prestigious journal, you gain that prestige for yourself. And then therefore you can get promoted or be, be kind of invited as a renowned guest who you know has prestige. And that's really the, the main currency. So it's kind of like endowing them with prestige. I have this paper there. So now suddenly I leveled up <laughs> because this higher being, this paper or this journal has deemed me worthy to be in it. Therefore, now I've been made a demigod by one of the gods is kind of that's exactly it and actually when i was in the program one of my fellow colleague students a few years ahead of me had actually published in a journal with a prestigious academic who had actually replied to his article and so when everyone learned that this prestigious academic replied to his article he automatically got massive prestige points yeah and thinking about that actually just being in a position of power is actually really fraught. When people would say stuff like, for instance, the Canadian truckers, whatever you feel about that, they would say, well, there's no harm in the government sitting down and talking to them. Merely interacting with somebody, even to refute them when you're far above them, is to platform them. Like, can you imagine if Beyonce were to pick shit with like some random person that nobody's ever heard of? That person suddenly is famous, even though Beyonce is dumping on them. Like Pete Davidson. Like, what's the deal with him? I don't even know who that is. What? The name sounds vaguely familiar. He's like the most like famous guy. Oh, wait, right SNL? Now guy yeah oh dating kim kardashian is that that is that who we're talking about yeah. oh so yeah, yeah talking about prestige points like he went from this like goofy like i don't really find him funny necessarily i have not seen him in anything honestly yeah he's like you're kind of a goofy not so funny snl guy to you yeah who skyrocketed in fame due to his association with 
Kardashian, Kardashian prestige. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Kardashian actually was legitimized by Kanye, I believe. I think she was something, but then I think marrying Kanye made her rocket even. I don't know. I, I I don't pay enough attention to them, so don't be like, no, she made it on her own. I don't really care, honestly. But it, I think that I'm just my point is like it's a chain of people giving other people more legitimacy by being associated with them. Yes, that's exactly it. It's a chain of prestige pulling up. So, so she got famous from this video where she was with a basketball player. Oh, right. And also, I don't know their relationship, I guess, but she's related to an Olympian too, isn't she? Through marriage? Or is that her actual biological father? I believe her biological father. Right. Is now a woman? Yes. I don't pay enough attention to their family tree. That's why I'm fumbling with this because I don't know who I'm actually necessarily speaking about. <laughs> but okay, continuing. Yeah, there's a chain of these people having been brought up by somebody that's connected to them. That's exactly. And so that this works. It's not just about money. It's about this kind of invisible, intangible prestige factor. And you can see this in not just academic type of prestige, as we talked about before, but like people flexing their watches and their Lambos and stuff. And so you can see like these attempts to gain prestige in kind of consumer culture as well. One of the things I've noticed about these different kinds of capital is that they're kind of like energy in a way where it's like energy cannot be created or destroyed, it cannot be transferred. And well, I don't think that's necessarily true in this case, but what I mean is they can transform energy from one form to another another. So like there's in this case, I'm talking about the capital, there's social capital, which you can then use to say you flex your network, and you're able to get some really prestigious cultural events, which then gives you cultural capital, which then you can trade that cultural capital by using that strike of conversation through the social capital again to talk to somebody at an institution. And because you know about that cultural thing that you share in common with them that they also deem as being worthwhile, you can then trade that into some institutional capital. So I guess it snowballs because you can kind of continually trade these things in but the thing is they don't deplete so i guess it's just reinvesting yeah i guess reinvesting i guess you can say it snowballs into i guess the social capital maybe snowballs into a job and then you now you have economic capital and then you can buy nice stuff and which results in your symbolic capital going up which then can help with your social capital again because now you're kind of presenting yourself in a different way so it's all very much accumulating snowballing you mentioned cultural capital i just want to quickly define that it's pretty much a broader version of symbolic capital but it's not just the symbols that you present it's also like understanding certain manner or language like etiquette for example oh, i was gonna ask about that whether social skills would be considered social capital but that's cultural capital you said cultural capital and so you can say there's inequality as well because people from more wealthy contexts will have certain kind of etiquette norms that were enforced at fancy events like how to eat with like five different forks and five different spoons so someone without kind of that cultural training of like what do you do they, they go to the fancy dinner like what do, like they're <laughs> <laughs> speaking on that topic i believe you and i have both looked into this despite never having really been to any events like maybe you have actually at this point but yeah we've both looked into like etiquette and how that works and i think i'm just going to test my knowledge with whether you know or not you go from the outside in right yes cool Good. Got it. There's your shorthand, people. Outside in. I mean, if you show up without that cultural capital, people are like, who's this guy? Like, he's so rude. Ugh. But if you have that from, you know, your family background and you've been socialized into those ways of being, those patterns of that etiquette, you can be kind of relatively impressive. And so there's the cultural capital, which is more than just the symbols you present, but your knowledge about the way of doing things. So the way that this is obvious is with what you were talking about, the people with the watches being like, look at my watch. That's lacking the cultural capital, but they yes. have the economic capital. They're yes. the nouveau reach. They've not had that passed down. They may not even have the economic capital because they might have like 
spent all of their money on that watch, but they have just the symbolic capital without maybe the economic and maybe without the cultural. If they're showing up, yeah, the nouveau riche would be that idea of you're showing up rude, but flashing your money. Almost like, you know, the great Gatsby kind of played on that whole idea of the nouveau riche. He was corrupted too because of it. They have the money, they have the symbols, they don't have the etiquette and the cultural capital. Therefore, they can be identified by the people in that network as they don't belong. And I'm not going to associate with that person. So they need more than one form of capital to really maximize their <laughs> their capital here. I think it's funny talking about cultural capital and having proper social etiquette when I'm talking over you. Yeah, speaking of cultural capital, were you raised in a barn? Or <laughs> oh man, that was a good insult there. Was I raised in a barn or was I raised in some backwoods village? I mean, small town, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and so speaking of this, this is a perfect transition because the fact that rural things and metaphors are used as a symbol for bad and low class, let's look at that because I just I just did it there. I've used a, a kind of trump card of like, ugh, you are... You're a bumpkin. You're just the, the proletariat, you know, the common... An unwashed mass. Yeah. And so this is very much in the sociological literature criticizing the bourgeoisie, I guess you could say, which is Karl Marx's term for the ruling class, the class with the economic capital, which owns the institutions, the means of production and reproduces these social divisions. And it's interesting that the word bougie comes from bourgeoisie, which was kind of the, that Marxist term. And now it's a good word. Is that uncommon knowledge? I guess it's good to clarify our terms. <laughs> but it's interesting because it was always used as a critique, like, oh, the bourgeoisie. You were often critiquing this class of people called the bourgeoisie. Isn't bourgeoisie? Is there an R in there? Bourgeois, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> So rude. Ugh. Yeah. But yeah, we do say bougie. So maybe if there is an art, it's been dropped off. But I mean, through grad school, this was like to be bourgeois was not good. It seems like valueless now to a good degree, because if you describe something as bougie, it just means expensive or upper scale. But it's a synonym for like good, <laughs> for classy. Upscale, like yeah. Thing. yeah. I was just thinking about like the progression in society where there will be like a poor area. So this is to do with artists, I guess. Development of certain areas of cities where there will be a poor area. It's kind of like bohemian and the artists move in there because it's cheap. And then they start making cool stuff and they start generating their own cultural capital because they've started making things that people actually want. And then as a result, it starts attracting money there because it's hip, it's cool, it's the place they want to be. They don't have any money, but they need money. So they start like attracting some money there. And eventually the rich people who want to be cool, they want to have that cultural capital, they move in and suddenly everything is starting to get more gentrified, aka everything is being more developed and more expensive so that the people that were originally making it cool can't afford to live there anymore. And so this area that was formerly cool is now just people who are trying to leech off of the coolness by going there with their money and their more expensive tastes, driving out the people that were actually creating the value in that area. Bam. Wow. You got it. Right on. The process of gentrification in a nutshell. Gentrified. And to the point of class inequality, I want to go back to rural contexts. That was bad. Yes. Side of the literature that says the social capital is actually a, a positive thing in society and that we should have more of it and that we need it. That would be Robert Putnam. Bowling alone. And what he would say, yes, bowling alone. He wrote that book. What he would say is that we need these close social ties. We need to be connected to one another and have common civic engagement and kind of this togetherness to form really democracy. And not only that, but a sense of belonging in our mental health. And often rural contexts are the things that very much have this and they have that community element. And so in his book, Bowling Alone, he was critiquing how in society there's fewer bowling leagues nowadays. And so what? Like who cares about bowling leagues necessarily? But he, what he was doing is saying there's fewer common kind of connections where we get together in person and do things together. Fewer instances of 
communal events is a, is a nice word for that. And not just cultural communal events like religious observance, but like leisure ones as well, like bowling leagues and other kind of civic gatherings where we come together. Like the Lions Club here in Canada, they have like the Knights of Columbus Club, all these types of clubs that people used to go to that we don't really even think about anymore. We're very atomized now, which is actually, now that you're speaking about Putnam, I'm thinking it is actually that from that perspective, because I was kind of viewing it a little bit like zero sum, but I guess since it's not destroyed and it's only accumulated, it seems, it seems like it's non-zero sum, that we can continue to grow the pie more and more by having people more like networked. Because if we talk about like networks, the general rule for the value of networks is the number of nodes in the network, which would be like if we're talking about people or like cell phones or computers, whatever, is the number of nodes squared is how valuable it is. So if we're able to network people in society better, we're more likely to connect people who will have like minds or similar goals and be able to actually drive progress forward. I think that's an oversimplification that may work for computing, but the number of nodes squared. (laughs) Yeah, why would that not work for humans? Because it's not just the number and the quantity, but the quality of those relationships. Oh, I mean, that is another factor. Like, yes, it'll complicate it a bit more by talking about like how strong they are. But even if we just looked at sheer numbers like that, I imagine it might actually kind of reflect similarly because, yeah, you'll have some strong ones, but the weak ties seem to have greater impact on like actual outcomes. I have a really good friend, you, who knows these other people and you vouch for me. I don't have a direct tie to those people, but because you vouch for me, that still is valuable to me and my network. But what if our relationship is based on one of, oh, I know this guy, Phil, he's, he's terrible. You can't <laughs> trust him at all. He's a real nuisance, you know? Okay. And the other okay. guy's like, yeah, I know that Phil. Then we could say... The square of positive relations, let's say. There is going to be really complicated because it's going to be offset by the negative ones too. Yeah, because this is, I mean, this is a qualitative variable that you're bringing in. Positive. Like, what, what does uh, that mean? I mean, okay, I can define that. That's <laughs> not that hard. Positive in the sense of like, they would wish you well. They would wish that something positive will happen to you, or at least they will not wish bad upon you, right? So you could actually complicate it where it'd be like two sides here. I'm starting to think like Bayesian statistics, but it's like there's the number of people squared that like you, and then I guess probably the neutral people either don't know about you, I guess, or we just don't count them. And then the negative people would be the number of negative people squared, and maybe it'd be additive then or subtractive, so positive minus negative. And I think you can complicate it more is not just people who like you or don't like you, but how much do they like you, but not just like you maybe they really like you but they don't trust you so we have weighted nodes well like you but don't (laughs) trust you okay fine it's way more complicated because we have to look at different dimensions as well (laughs) walking me down the path teacher good job It actually makes me think about, you could actually make a game probably on this because like I'm obviously in the D&D space, Dungeons and Dragons for those who are unaware, but it seems like you could probably come up with like a tabletop system of like social capital. Like this person's very good, like has a high social capital score, but then very low cultural capital. So they'd be like a buffoon that everyone likes. Oh, that would be such a good game. You'd have like, I don't know, various yeah indicators of capital, cultural, economic, social, institutional, and your player has different stats and then each one has its advantages and disadvantages none of them are maximized but each of them has like a weakness and a strength and you pick your your player the buffoon or the fool yeah but i think like the holy fool i guess is the stereotype or lucky fool but that actually is how i think that games should be used that we can actually engage with advanced concepts in a way that's actually fun and will make you know because if you don't understand how these mechanics work in the game you can't really play the game but if you understand these mechanics from the game then you can better understand society as well so gamification of learning i think is vital and there's something called edutainment and it's 
really gross a lot of the time. No, I love the idea of it, but the execution is so poor most of the time. Right, 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 right. So we're going to come out with a new product called <laughs> the Concepts Board Game. Yeah! <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you could pick a player with various degrees of high and low capital, <laughs> what combination would you pick? What kind would, I mean, it depends on which ones we're talking about. We got social, we got symbolic, we got cultural, institutional, and economic. Is that five? That's five. And how, how many would you say there need to be? I think five is a decent number. Five to seven. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, uh, man. Well, if you could put one superpower out of all those capitals, like what one would you maximize? Probably cultural, because then you could use that to go to events and, or maybe, no, maybe economic, because then you could invest the economics into getting cultural by being educated, paying a teacher, and then getting etiquette training. Then you could use that to get social capital by going around. And with that economic capital, you can also get symbolic capital. And then finally, with those other forms, you could pretty quickly get institutional capital. So I think starting with money, actually, it's funny that you let me down this because like, it does seem like that's the ultimate one. As you're going down that path, I'm like, yeah, actually, economic is like the one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other ones you'd have to try to use to leverage to get economic capital. Because once you have that, you can start reinvesting. Like, I want to do that land project, right? So like, if I had enough money, I would pay somebody to teach me to make the place. So then I could then make the rest of the places myself. It's funny that your instinct, though, was to start down the hard path, like just given you as a, <laughs> your experience. Yeah. You're like, I must work for it. I will start with learning skills to show up at fancy events and then try to get a job. Yeah. <laughs> You're like you're, you started with like actually probably the hardest one. That's probably true, yeah. Though I think you and I have talked about this project that we want to do as well, which was the altruistic networking, and that very much plays into this concept. I don't think we've actually talked about it on air before, have we? I don't think so. Let's talk about it. All right. It. So it's an idea that I proposed from a bunch of books that you suggested to me, being like the Go Giver. I think was one where essentially this guy's entire job is to connect people and help them through that. And he doesn't necessarily... The Go-Giver is a book by Bob Berg, by the way. Great book. Highly Very short, too. And he does it in a way that's very narrative. So it's like a nonfiction book, but it's told as a kind of fable. But anyway, the idea we had was we would go to a bunch of different academic events. Steve's Cultural Capital would help us to get into those events because like, you understand how that system works. You understand academia. And symbolic capital. Yeah. And so then we would use cultural capital to invest in social capital and then use that social capital... Okay, in concrete terms, we're going to go to different events, be it in various industries and various academic disciplines, to meet as many people as we can. And then the ostensible reason we're going there is to find ways that we can connect people across industries and across disciplines to create value through that. And we were saying it's altruistic networking because we're not going to do it for ourselves. In fact, I've made this unofficial rule so far of we have to reject any offers for help three times. <laughs> we cannot openly ask for help just to make it so it is altruistic. And then my hypothesis going in is that by helping all these other people, we will actually end up inadvertently being helped the most in total. Even though we're going to purposefully help other people, it will reflect back on us. Yeah, yeah. So using the symbolic and cultural capital to get into these events to meet people. Well, there's also possibly economic capital because these events are not cheap, which is why I was talking about using cultural because we can possibly find ways to like work with a coordinator or something. Oh, the way to get in these events free is you become a speaker at the event. Right. Yeah. So if, if you just, if you're 
fine with public speaking. You can go for free. And that's, I guess, what we're both going to have to do. <laughs> no, I'd have no problem. Oh, yeah. You've talked to many at a conference. I, I forget who I'm talking to. <laughs> Dr. Stephen Rose, PhD. Do you forget? <laughs> no, but I did it as a student because I don't want to pay for the, the entry fees. <laughs> so he's probably like, I'm a doctor. Of course I'm doing this. But it's actually, oh, when I was broke, I would actually find ways. No, I was a broke doctoral student who didn't want to pay entry fees. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I mean, I just... it makes sense for sure. But you do have to pay at some of the ones you speak at, like the, the Canadian Sociological Association. You still have to pay like $1,000. Yeah. crazy. There was a design conference when I was 800 I was looking at. Oh, even if you're a speaker, you're paying to go speak somewhere. It's almost like paying to publish in a Again, journal. yeah, exactly. We're, we're trading for prestige, right? By speaking at this thing, you're, you're getting more prestige. It's the exact same thing. So the way you actually go for free is you volunteer. So that's what I often did was I would volunteer as like a session moderator. So I would be like the person with like the sign saying like, <laughs> five minutes left. <laughs> that's funny. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And then I'd have like the, the stopwatch and then I would step up to the podium after and I would thank the speaker. I'm kind of picturing you in like a, one of those ball boy uniforms or outfits in tennis where they run on and grab the ball and run off without being seen. That's you in the academic settings wearing those little shorts. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> so to make it Where as stupid looking as possible. From? Well, part of the session moderator was also to introduce the panel. So you were literally the first person when everyone sat down, when the time started, you would be like, be at tap the mic, you know, like, all right, thank you for attending the, the session on social capital. Today we have Dr. Da, 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 who are you speaking about? Da, da, da. Welcome our first speaker, Dr. Da, da, da. You stuck to the facts. You didn't have to like do an impromptu, like they've accomplished this and this. I don't need to give them any instruction, but so they just give you the facts you and you would, read them. You would introduce them. You would have the introduction bio on a piece of paper and you would just read a brief portion. So this is maybe a way that we can actually get around the economic capital problem. Also, I don't know how, again, I'm skeptical of a lot of things that I read now from the times that I read from Malcolm Gladwell. But he talked about how there are social mavens, people that are very connected. And one of them would be people who are coordinating these sorts of events. So even inadvertently, you would be connecting with that person because apparently the reason this is effective is because they sometimes just need somebody to speak. They need to have some side stage or some side room used for that time and they're just hungry for people to actually help and so by offering that then you're connecting with this person who is well connected themselves so just by doing that repeatedly and again this is we're doing it openly to do it altruistically just by talking and working with coordinators and giving them help we would actually if we did say one good event like really well we helped out a lot and we actually helped them in retrospective we looked back and like the people were like wow it was so great that person helped a lot then that person the person who ran the event would then likely have other events or know other people who run these events also running them which would help us get in with those as well so it's like this weird virtuous cycle where we're not doing it for ourselves but it is still going to help us and i think they'd be more willing to help us because we're not doing it for ourselves right so maybe starting as a volunteer is actually like a nice part of this altruistic networking project. Yeah, 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 that makes sense, actually. Because I was talking to somebody that I'm coaching and he was saying how he wants to build properties and he says that he's not like I'm asking him what his purpose is why is he doing this what is the ultimate thing he would do after he's reached so much success that he has all his capital in all the forms we just mentioned that he can do whatever he wants he's free and he can accomplish big things what is his guiding purpose what is he doing this for and he came up with actually a good reason but then when I said I suggested that he introduce that when people ask him what he's doing what his long-term goals are or whatever he can introduce that he's working towards that but he said he 
wouldn't do that because he would be lying. He's just going to tell people he's doing it for providing for his family. And I'm like, <laughs> so you're saying you're doing it for selfish means, which will then turn people off from helping you because you don't have a grander narrative that can, I don't know what kind of capital you would count that as, but by having a grander vision, a message you're actually working towards, you can actually accrue more allies more quickly because they believe in your goal, right? Right, right. Yeah, that sounds like kind of, kind of a charismatic leader, a visionary type of leader. I know Robert Greene talks about that in his book on something about the charisma. He talked about the kind of the visionary leaders attracting people through visions. Yeah, I don't know what form of capital that would fall under. The art of seduction, maybe? That's the only one I can come up with when I look up his books. But yeah, I mean, for that, I guess having that might be cultural capital because you're coming in with an idea that you're trading and people actually want to have it or be involved with it. So it's kind of like an art project in the way that like people would value it for its own sake kind of thing. They would actually want to be associated with it. Oh, going to art. Talking or about religion. symbolic capital. Or religion. <laughs> Look, both these, but yeah, continue with art. Yeah, art. It's just like as bad as academia. It's all very much in this prestige realm of like, this painting was done by this person, Peter Lick. <laughs> A photography by Peter Lick. I was in an LA photography studio by Peter Lick. L-I-K, by the way. <laughs> L-I-K. But uh, the way they kind of present his photos as like, ooh, yeah, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, oh, it's just his, it's Im- imbued with just quality. And we can also tie that back to like ownership of something like say, a guitar versus, let's say, Elvis's guitar. I think that's an example people talk about where oh, it's like Elvis touched it. Yeah, it's like yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's like it's like he touched the. Or it's like there was this is actually just the neck, but they had to remake the rest of it because it was all destroyed in the fire or something. It would still have some imbued value that we attribute to it. Yeah, this cloth held the sweat of Elvis. Like after his one show at this place. And the sweat of Elvis touched this. And like religious artifacts, like I think that's where you're going with that. Relics are kind of this this whole area of of imbued with this cultural capital. I'm just thinking of some ridiculous relics right now. Oh, I mean, then there's the ones that like are refuting relics. Like was it urine Jesus? Do you know that picture? I don't know what this person drank or consumed, but it's like the grossest yellow-orange urine, and there's a crucifix in it. And it was just a huge event when it was released because it's so sacrilegious. But it's kind of like, honestly, I don't understand how people are even offended by this stuff, even at that point, because like Madonna had been around for a while using Christian imagery offensively, and I guess hers is more sexualizing it, but like... It's not as bad as like defecation or expulsion of some sort. You want to know a very strange and interesting relic that there's some debate whether or not it's actually accepted by the church. But it's, it's just definitely, it's been talked about. The holy foreskin. What? That's funny. Yeah. You ever heard of it? Like, it's a thing. Like, the CBC literally did a, a full episode exploring the holy foreskin. What about it? Like, when it was supposedly recognized by a small group of people in a particular time and place, it's not recognized as an official relic in the in the church now, in the Catholic Church, I should say. It's not recognized, and I've talked to a, a friend who, who confirmed this very vehemently, but supposedly there was a small community of people that kind of got a hold of this thing, and they, they, they thought it was like... What era are you talking skin. about this? Like, when? I believe medieval, generally speaking. Uh, okay. I mean, then there was also 
also like the whole argument about whether Jesus ever defecated or not. Like some say that he was holy and so he was not subject to such profane things. And then the other side says, oh, he was the complete human form of God, so he must have. And there's just <laughs> ridiculous debates about this. But I guess it's not ridiculous to them. It's ridiculous to me as somebody that's more secular. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just looking up the holy force. Actually, game. look up. I sent you on WhatsApp. I sent you the picture of Piss Jesus. Is the actual name Piss Jesus? Look at that color of urine. No way. Yeah. Is there blood in there? Is that? It kind of looks like this person is a very unhealthy. It's like they're on chemo or something. I don't know. Like I've never seen. I've never had urine that color before. But the crucifix is like so perfectly. The crucifix is an actual object there, and there's like lighting and everything. It's just in a tank with urine. Is this an art project? Yeah, yeah. It was a big cultural event by Serrano Andre. Andres. Oh, sorry, Andres Serrano. Yeah, exactly. That's that was the point of it. And it was seen as blasphemous. If you want to hear his quote about it, this is all linked. You will see it in the show notes. And he says, I had no idea Piss Christ would get the attention it did, since I meant neither blasphemy nor offense by it. I've been a Catholic all my life, so I am a follower of Christ. Why did you make this Ted? That doesn't make any sense. You pissed on your God? What are you doing? <laughs> like, why would you even like what? <laughs> this is just a way to get smited. <laughs> Oh, no. That doesn't even look like real urine. That guy needs to get checked out. Yeah. It might have actually just been like, maybe he symbolically said it was urine, told everybody it was urine. They believe it's urine. And since it's a symbolic offense, it doesn't matter whether it was or not. Since they believed it, the offense is still there. Yeah. See, symbols matter. And this is why this relates to the concept, because money does drive the world, as we've indicated. It's the chief form of capital. But there's a lot of these cultural things that carry currency. And your ability to belong depends on like the symbols you present. And presenting a blasphemous symbol as such can can really have some real blowback to it. Oh, yeah. But the thing is, I mean, yeah, of course, symbols are super important. Like symbols are memes because like they are the things that hijack our mind. Like I'm finding that there are certain ideas I had in the past that after enough research and looking to other areas, they're starting to be expunged or like starting to be extracted and feeling like psychologically, it's kind of like a tick being removed where it's like very meticulous. And it's like, well, what about this? But where's that? Where's the edge of that line end? Because like certain ideas of say Evo psych, evolutionary psych have been really brought out of favor and like we're very popular for a bit, but it's like kind of in the less scientific communities. And so I'm trying to figure out, like, I know I've read some academic things on it and I know there's some validated ideas. It's just, where is that line now? And I'm having to try to like figure out where's the cancer have these ideas and how can I excise it? But it's just this very difficult thing to do. <laughs> Cancer of ideas like that. Yeah, we talked about something like that a little while back. A couple episodes ago. But I mean, that's one of the things that sets us very apart. I mean, in all psych books try to open up by saying humans are the only creatures that do X. And a lot of the time, whenever they say that, it ends up being found in some other species somewhere. But I think this may not be true, but we are primarily a symbolic species. Like a lot of what we do and how we interact is to do with symbols. Yes. Yeah, we are heavily symbolic beings and our ability to use complex language allows us to do that each word is a symbol in itself yes it's a concept <laughs> yes concepts are almighty and this is why we're focusing on them this goes back as we often do circling back to the title <laughs> oh remember that conference i was telling you about i volunteered at because i didn't want to have to pay i was just thinking there's a relevant thing that i made the connection before so prince harry actually made a surprise appearance to that conference and it was in Toronto. It was a veterans conference on veterans health. And he was doing a campaign around that because he has a military background himself. So he, he showed up and he did a keynote. And I realized after the conference, I was like, wait a minute. And because I presented at this at this conference as well. But I was like realizing technically I could say like I've spoken at the same conference as Prince Harry. Like it sounds fancy. Yeah. 
It does. It's like a form of symbolic capital that sounds on the surface like, oh, you spoke at a conference that Prince Harry was at? But that's also how like communist regimes have worked or any top regime, not to associate you with communists necessarily, because I was thinking about Stalin in particular. But I think a lot of these things were opaque and it wasn't clear where people's positions were. But the way they knew where people stood in the hierarchy was how close they were to the head honcho. If you're right beside him, oh, you're important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so on a surface, I can like it sounds like to the average person like Prince Harry was in the audience and I was in front of like a crowd of people presenting very far from the case. He doesn't know who you are. <laughs> no, no, no. He did the keynote in the big room with all the people. And then I was presenting in a, in a little breakaway session on like a side when we we're like 10 other sessions were happening around the whole convention. How many center. people would you say were in your audience? Maybe like, you know, you get 20 to 50 people in your thing. It's like a little breakaway. And there's like 10 other presentations happening. And Prince Harry's just showed up for like the hour and he's gone. And, you know, he does the big keynote. Everyone goes in the same room. But like the way these things actually work in practice, practice it's like oh that's not very fancy it was just like you did a quick thing but on the surface level academics often do this like they'll like present things in a way that looks very fancy go-getters in business spaces do the same thing where they say like oh i was attached to this and i led this like i have to do i in my editing company i have had to do many a paper where they basically they're an intern and they made it seem like the company trusted them with an entire division like that's how they're speaking because like they had some hand in it also before we move off of it i'm curious i'm wondering if Prince Harry, the time he was there, is overlapping with when my cousin, who works in the film industry, was working on Suits, because that's where Meghan Merkel was at that time filming in Toronto. So I'm just wondering if there's any tie to his visits <laughs> to her. But it's funny that we both have connections to both this sides. This was after. Oh, after all that? Yeah, this was after. The, yeah. But it's interesting, like, just being close to, like, prestige gives you, imbues you with that. And the way that you can use it to leverage more prestige. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. The thing is, there's a lot of posers as well who will say, oh, I did this with this person and that with that person. But if you actually ask any of those people, they have no idea who this person is. So it's something that people have a very high sensitivity to in those areas too, which is where we get to like aristocratic kind of situations where societies, the more successful they are and the longer they're successful, the more aristocratic they become, which is what it's kind of like now. Like if you listen to podcasts, nobody seems to be outside of Ivy League for some reason. Everyone that's guests on them, everyone that's hosting them, that at least the ones that I've heard of have some connection usually with the Ivy League and even us. Ivy League universities? Yeah, or I mean like the top tier of universities in the world and specifically North America. Every guest seems to be that even when they're like small time podcasters that I don't think are too popular yet. Even them, I, I find the ones that like are suggested to me usually have some sort of capital in that way. I did also have a question about institutional capital because I don't think that we've defined that one. Like what what is that? Where's the hard line on that? Is it just having positions in institutions? Is it being able to get institutions to listen to you? Maybe it's a level of access and influence to be able to leverage the institution. To get an audience with them, perhaps? Well, for whatever you want to use it for. Like if you are a police officer, you can leverage that institution to get your friends off of charges, for example. Yeah, know? I guess that makes sense. And it's not supposed to happen, but in practice... Oh, man. <laughs> Speaking on that note, there's a bunch of like uplifting things in the States. I think it was Iowa and I want to say Colorado that they've changed the legislation on body cams because they have them, I suppose, and they must. And in Colorado, I think they changed the law so that if you tamper with your camera at all, malfeasance is assumed. And that's how it should be. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And then I think in Iowa, somebody was in a kerfuffle. I just like that word. Kind of 
group that was rowdy and they shut off their camera. And so they charged them with something, I think, or they actually had some sort of punishment saying that they assumed that something was bad. Why, why would you shut it off in that instance? Like, obviously, you were doing something or thought you might. I like that. Malfeasance is assumed. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's what is needed to keep people with power, especially such institutional power in control. There we go. I guess now I understand institutional power to a better level, thinking about the police. There we go. There Thank we you. Go. I think it's been a fun, a fun discussion today. We've been a little more jovial and back and forth. I always feel like I have to be a lot more proper and respectful in a guest episode. So I find it's a lot more tense where I'm like, okay, make things go right, make it smooth, don't, don't screw up. <laughs> Especially with our highly esteemed guests we've been having recently. Yes, exactly. That's some very prestigious ones. I also misspoke. Dr. Ross Allenhorn was not our most prestigious. He's just one of the most prestigious because I don't want to start ranking them. <laughs> I hope in that one by saying that because we also had Jeremy Sherman. I'm not going to say his word wrong. I'm sorry. Dr. Jeremy Sherman, because I always seem to mess that up. He is also very prestigious. And I mean, not to knock any of the other ones as well. Everyone's prestigious. There we go. I'm just going to leave it at that. Everyone has symbolic capital, and therefore no one has symbolic capital. Yeah, so... So Putnam actually is destructive because he wants us all to have social capital, which means none of us have it. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Actually, that's one thing I realized is that people talking about how printing money now, especially since it's not geared to anything, doesn't necessarily make sense. Like saying that economics, this is way off on a tangent, but they're saying that more of something means it's less expensive. So more gold means it's less expensive to have gold, right? It's less worthy, it's less valuable. And that's not true when it comes to certain things. There's a new economic frame because there's two different sides of economics here. There's one where scarcity means value. And there's the other one where abundance means value. So again, going back to networks, networks are more valuable by having a larger network. If you only have a network of two, it's not that valuable. If you have a network of a hundred, that's like a thousand if we're going by the N squared kind of thing. So I think that when we talk about money or these abstract concepts that are no longer geared towards the physical world, it's hard to tell the actual impacts. But in terms of what I'm talking about is like UBI, universal basic income, where the government was printing money to pay people. People were saying, oh my God, it's devaluing the dollar definitely and 100% all the time. But it's like the very belief of that and shouting it from the rooftops and forcing like that opinion to be the opinion actually is a self-fulfilling prophecy because it could not mean that by new economic standards. Maybe by having, say, the US dollar be the de facto currency of the world continuing to be that is more valuable to them. So having more of it in the market actually could still be better because it maintains global dominance with that currency. It's hard to say. It's really abstract, but quite abstract. We could do a whole episode on just that. Whoa. Yeah, we could. Although we're not. We need an economist on here. Yeah, we do. Anyway, it was great talking to you, Steve. And for you guys listening, thanks. Hope you enjoyed it. A little more casual this time. All right. See you next time. <laughs> Wait a second. Bye. Yeah. All right. See ya. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Yeah, sure. I got all day.